There are many titles ascribed to Jesus, which are commonly on the lips of his believers. We frequently refer to Jesus as Savior, Redeemer, Lamb of God, or Lord. Mark has been endeavoring to prove throughout his gospel account how two seemingly at odds titles of Jesus can both be true at the same time. According to 2 Samuel 7, God would raise up a descendant of David who would be a Christ or a king who would also be God's son. This son of God or this king would be given dominion over all the world and even the nations would be made subject to him. You can read about that in Psalm 2 or Psalm 110. What Mark has been trying to teach us is how it is that this same individual, which all of Israel was awaiting, could also be the suffering servant that's described in places like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Now these ideas seem to contradict. How can the one of whom it is spoken who will conquer the world and defeat his enemies also be defeated by his enemies and be killed? How is it possible that the Christ could also be the suffering servant. And what Mark really has proven to us is not only is it possible, it was necessary. And even at the hour of Jesus' seeming humiliation, even at the hour when Jesus seems to be defeated by his enemies at the crucifixion itself, everything was engineered by God to demonstrate the reality of Mark's initial claim. In Mark 1, verse 1, when he said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then we get to Mark 15, when Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's taken to be crucified. And what happens? It seems like he's just going to die the death of an insurrectionist. When the Romans come, they mock him. But what do they mock him as? They mock him as a king. When Jesus is lifted on the cross, what does that placard say above his head? It says he's king of the Jews. When the Jews come to the cross to do their mocking of Jesus, in what way do they mock him? They mock him as the king. They say, if you're the king of Israel, come down from the cross. And finally, when Jesus breathes his last and dies on the cross, The centurion standing by, seeing the way that he has died, says, Truly this man was the Son of God. Only by becoming the suffering servant can Jesus be enthroned as Israel's king. But now we have a big problem. How can a dead man reign as king? If Jesus is to be Israel's suffering servant, how can someone who is dead rule the world? And then, to add to the complexity of this problem, we have to acknowledge that actually the titles of Christ, Son of God, or Suffering Servant are not even the titles that Jesus preferred when referring to himself. Instead, Jesus adds another Old Testament title into this mix, Son of Man. Now let's read a few passages from Mark to start to see some times when Jesus uses this title to refer to himself. We'll start in Mark 8 and we'll read verse 31. 
Mark 8, verse 31. This is the first time Jesus predicts His passion and His death. It says there, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise from the dead. Let's look at Mark 9, verses 9 and 10. This is after the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, John, and Jesus are descending. It says as they were coming down from the mountain, He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And then look now at verses 30 and thir- through 32 of the same chapter. This is another prediction. And from there, they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be handed over to men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. I love that Mark adds that little bit at the end. You'd think after hearing it so many times, they might have had some understanding. Not only did they understand, they were too afraid to ask. And one more, Mark 10, verses 32 through 34. Jesus now, as it gets closer to the time where he's going to arrive in Jerusalem, gets even more specific about what will happen to him when he gets there. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed And those who followed were fearful. By the way, he had just performed some miracles on the way up. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And three days later... He will rise from the dead. And then a few verses later in verse 45, Jesus makes that statement. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Now why is it that Jesus so frequently referred to Himself as the Son of Man, especially in connection with His impending death, His suffering on the cross, And what does it mean to call himself after this expression? Well, in order to understand that, we have to go back to where this title originates. And that's going to take us to the Old Testament book of Daniel. This will be the only Old Testament reading we'll have this afternoon. So take a minute to find Daniel chapter 7. Now we pretty much know Daniel's story, at least the most basic components of it. Daniel was a young man when the Babylonian Empire came and began to bring exiles out of Jerusalem and Judea and take them away to Babylon. Daniel and several of his other Hebrew friends were taken to Babylon, and while there, their holy city, Jerusalem, and the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And now, for several decades, the people of God would live in exile in Babylon. Uh, Daniel was blessed by God to be able to serve in a high position in the Babylonian court. He ministered to the Babylonian and later Persian kings when the Persians toppled the Babylonians. He lived a long and fruitful life in exile. And Daniel gave many prophecies 
about what God was doing in the world and how this exile was not a defeat of God. It was just the next phase in his master plan. God would restore Israel to their land and great blessings would come, including the kingdom of God. In the midst of some of these prophecies in Daniel 7, he's given a vision into the very throne room of heaven. In Daniel 7 and verse 9, it says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Notice the plural, thrones. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. Though Notice the throne has wheels. Ezekiel sees something similar. And that's because God's throne wasn't stationary. It was mobile. When Ezekiel saw the wheel and the wheel vision in Ezekiel 1, he was seeing God's war chariot ready to move out in that instance against his own people. So God's throne is not stationary. It goes where he pleases so that he can do what needs to be done. So Daniel looks up and he sees thrones in this space. And uh, God is there, the Ancient of Days, and He's manifesting His glory in fire. And then look at what it says, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now Daniel is not the first prophet to use the phrase son of man. Ezekiel also frequently used this title, but he used it to talk about himself. So literally, do you know what the phrase son of man means? It just means a guy. It just means a dude, some bloke, a human, a man. That's literally what the phrase means. It's a guy. It's some dude. And Ezekiel said, I'm just a son of man. And God has given me all these visions about what's going to occur. But Daniel saw something that would have been nearly impossible for him to comprehend, and it was nearly impossible for any Jews who came after him to interpret it until Jesus. What Daniel saw was a guy, a human being, some dude who not, uh, uh, excuse me, some dude who was not bound to the earth, but who was taken up who was lifted up all the way to where the Ancient of Days is. He was elevated all the way up to the heavenly throne room. And there, he sits on a throne next to the Ancient of Days. Now, just think about what that means. When Moses wanted to see God's glory, do you remember what God said? God said, no one can see my face and live. So instead, God took Moses and he sort of stuck him in a little cave, a little rock, a little alcove, and he passed by that cave. And it says that Moses saw God's back, whatever that means, to see God's back. And that was as close as Moses could get to the shining, brilliant glory of God. Even the cherubim 
who surround the throne of God and praise his name saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with your glory. Do you know what they have to do? They have to have extra wings beyond the two that they use to fly just so they can cover their face and cover the lower part of their body. But now Daniel sees this dude, this guy, who gets to go all the way up to the throne room of heaven and there's a throne there next to God's throne that he gets to just sit in. And not only does this guy sit in a throne next to God, but all the nations and languages and tribes, they're all made subject to him. The dude, the guy, the son of man. And this son of man receives worship. He receives worship. He's next to God and they're worshiping him. Now how in the world is it possible for any human being to be enthroned next to the Ancient of Days and receive dominion and worship? When Jesus came, he used this title to refer to himself. Now the question is, when Jesus used this title to refer to himself, did he have Daniel's vision in mind? And you better believe he did. Let's read about it. This is going to be Mark 14 now. Mark 14. We're going to begin reading in verse 60, but let me tell you where we are. Judas has led an arresting party to Gethsemane. Jesus has been captured. He's been taken before the council or the Sanhedrin. They tried to find some false witnesses who could come and bring condemning testimony against Jesus. But these witnesses didn't really agree with each other. Their stories were inconsistent. And so finally, the high priest, in frustration with the fact that they couldn't find two witnesses whose stories lined up, just decides to confront Jesus with an allegation. This is the allegation in verse 60. It says, The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not offer any answer for what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not offer any answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and said to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? That's this right here. Is this you? Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Is that who you are? I want you just to tell me outright. Verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. But then he adds, And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Daniel 7. He says, oh yeah, I'm this guy and I'm this guy too. The dude who gets to go up and sit next to God is given dominion over the earth and receives worship. Look at the high priest's reaction in verse 63. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? 
And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. Then the officers took custody of him and slapped him in the face. And so, Jesus has affirmed all of these realities about himself. He has affirmed that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in order to achieve his mission as the Christ, in order to become this kind of Son of God, remember, the phrase Son of God is used at least in two ways in the Bible. One, how John uses it, speaks of Jesus' divine nature. But in Mark, Son of God is a messianic title. It's not something Jesus was born with. It's something he had to earn. And in order to earn that title, he had to do this. He had to suffer and die on the cross. But God made a promise that even if he suffered and died on the cross, this would still be true of him. He would still ascend into glory to rule the world. But how can a dead man do all that? Well, of course he can't. Which is why Mark doesn't end in chapter 15. It ends in chapter 16. And so we read in Mark 16, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb for us? And looking up, they noticed that the stone had been rolled away, for it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. But he said to them, Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled for the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I love especially that the angel says, you make sure Peter knows. Last we heard of Peter, he had denied Jesus three times and had gone out and wept bitterly, realizing what he had done. All the disciples needed this message of the resurrection, but Peter maybe needed it most of all. And so these women were commissioned to be the first evangelists, to be the first humans on earth to go and testify that Jesus is alive, that he has risen from the dead, that the power of death could not hold him, the grave could not contain him. Not only were these women to be the first evangelist, but in verse 9 we learn that the first human to which Jesus ever appeared in his resurrection body was also a woman, Mary Magdalene. 
And she would be the one, according to John's gospel, who would run to where Peter and John were. She would testify to them what had happened. They did not believe her. But they did sprint to the tomb. John, presumably the younger man, won the foot race. And when they arrived, they confirmed what Mary had already told them. And then they left, and Mary came back, weeping, thinking Jesus had been taken from the tomb, maybe by his enemies, meeting who she presumed to be the gardener, and was in such distress, had no idea it was Jesus. Until he spoke her name. And so... The story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, though it leads ultimately to his death on the cross in his strange enthronement at Calvary, does not end there. Jesus came forth from the grave. And because Jesus came forth from the grave, and because he ascended to the right hand of the Father, Jesus can be the one who is Christ, the suffering servant, and the Son of Man who reigns on high and is worshipped by those of all nations, tribes, and languages. Now there's one more bit of evidence that would confirm to the world that Jesus truly is the Son of Man. I have over here the resurrection and the ascension. But remember... Jesus told his enemies, the high priest and the Sanhedrin, remember what he said to them? You, you will see the Son of Man ascending with the clouds. You will see him take his throne. You will see that I am the Son of Man and the Christ, the Son of God. How would they see it? It doesn't seem that they ever saw Jesus in his resurrection body like the disciples did. It doesn't appear that they were present when Jesus ascended into heaven. So what would be the sign that Jesus is not dead, but that he is risen? Mark gives us the answer. Pick up in verse 14 of chapter 16. Later, he appeared to the 11 disciples themselves as they were reclining at table and he reprimanded them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he'd risen from the dead. Oh boy, that sounds familiar. They're still struggling. Verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. The one who has believed and been baptized will be saved but the one who is not believed will be condemned. Verse 17. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So then, when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Do you know how the Sanhedrin and the high priest and all the enemies of Jesus would know that he was alive and reigning from heaven? 
Because it was Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit to work in the lives of those who called themselves after Christ. It was the Holy Spirit who gave evidence to all who were in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Galilee and the ends of the earth that the Christians were following a risen Savior, that the Christians had been enabled by the power of God, that the Christians were working signs in the name of Christ, the Son of God, who was seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the world. The Holy Spirit was the sign that Jesus is alive and well and that His kingdom is enveloping the whole earth. When we started this study and we looked at Mark 1, verse 1, I mentioned that he begins with the word beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now that we've gotten to the end of the book, you know what we found? Not an ending. No, not an ending at all. It says in verse 20, they went out. Preached everywhere. The Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. That didn't conclude when Mark wrapped up this gospel account. That continued. And we are still today, 2,000 years later, living out the same story. The Holy Spirit continuing to work through His people. The message of a risen Savior being proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Mark's gospel does not end. And it will not end until the King returns in glory. It will not end until His mission is accomplished on the earth. It will not end until all the world sees the Son of Man in brilliant glory. It is alive and well today just as Jesus is alive and well today. And that means you and I get to be part of the same story. The same story that began with Jesus and continues through His people today. That's good news. The greatest news. that We are invited by King Jesus to participate in His reign over the earth. When I think about that, I can't help but think about what David said in the 8th Psalm. What is man that you're mindful of him? Why us? Why would he even want us? And yet that's the beauty of the Gospel. God made us in His image. And we struggle to live up to that image every day. And in spite of that struggle, God still wants us to participate in the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God.